Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, 
will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. Revelation chapters 17 and 18. Oh, good morning, church. Let's have our Bibles open and our journals open to 17 and 18, the chapters in Revelation. I'd also ask you to turn first to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin there this morning, and then I'll tell you when to flip back over to Revelation. If you're visiting Christ Church, we're in the seventh week of this nine-week series looking at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the first five words focuses in on the intent. And we've been looking at it from this perspective. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about our relationship with him and how we interact in his kingdom and his plans? And what is he telling us about himself and about us? And uh, I want to begin this morning by telling you that I think the greatest challenge facing Christians today is not persecution, it's seduction. And I want to speak especially to the Western church. Now I can show you that throughout the world there is persecution taking place and I'm not downplaying that. But for most of us in our culture today, the challenge is not going to be persecution. It is absolutely going to be seduction. And this is what chapter 17 and 18 will show us. But as we begin, I want you to hear what the same author of the Revelation, the one it was revealed to, who wrote it out for us, is also the author of this letter to the early churches in 1 John. And this is what he says in verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things of the world. That is not one of my favorite verses. Because if I'm really honest, and I need to be, uh, I have love for things of this world. Now, I'm not saying, and John is not saying, do not love the people of the world, or, but he's saying, don't love the things of the world that contradict God. Don't love the things of the world that question his wisdom or oppose his wisdom and his kindness. And love is an interesting expression about what we choose to love and choose not to love. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the English pastor from a century ago, said these words, and I want you to pay attention to this quote as it appears. Put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history, and you'll find a little marginal note. In this age, people could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. I think there's a, a profundity in that quote where he says there is a moment where the church is distinct in the way it lives and why it lives. And when the church has no distinction and it looks just like the world, then the world has one victory. Because the church is not shining a light that demonstrates the darkness that the world lives in. You might remember back to week two in this series, and we talked about how Jesus walks in the church and he understands what's going on. We entitled it, He Knows. And he challenged the church. He warned the church. He encouraged the church. And he promised the church. And as we look at those points, you might remember that one of the things he warned them against was infidelity toward the world trying to be gods and of the world at the same time, being gods and loving and holding on to the idols of the world, like having multiple gods at one time. And so we realize that the, the letters to the churches, this message of revelation, it changes life-altering materialism. It changes us against the poison of sexual immorality. It challenges our self-centered self-righteousness 
And it calls us to be warned that you and I can live in the world and we're told by John, don't love the things of the world. Love the people of the world. But don't fall in love with those things that oppose the wisdom of God as he's given to all of us. I'd like to read, continuing in verse 15 of that second chapter. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does, the will of God abides forever. So there's a a challenge here that John explains to us that the world is seducing us. It is seducing us away from God into itself. And it's promising power and prestige and satisfaction. And yet only those who remain unseduced by the world will be those who live in the kingdom forever and enjoy that. If you look with me, Revelation 17 and 18, if you want to turn there now, in Revelation 17 and 18, what you're going to see is this is an illustration of what John is talking about. You'll see these two chapters are actually telling us what's going to happen to the world that is seducing us away from God. And this passage is humbling because I find myself loving some of the things of the world. Now, God is not telling me not to love the beauty of the world. He's not telling us that we can't love the joy in the world and the creation and the glory that God is showing in creation. The the world, the earthly things, the flesh that we live in is not a bad thing. It is given to us by God. It's when we use it for purposes outside of God's plan that it becomes our poison. It becomes our damage. And so he's calling us to love the things of the world that God has given us for God's purposes. And so to depict the seduction, right? Because it's not that we're faced with persecution in our culture, we're faced with seduction and both of them are detrimental. One actually leads to the other. But there's an image that is used in the 17th chapter that is shocking. Uh, And it depends on your translation. The the word that is used to depict what's going on in our world today uh, depends on your translation of scripture. Some translations say prostitute. Some translations say harlot. And then the good old-fashioned ones say whore, which is really funny because when I say the word whore in church, those of you not paying attention now are, right? Heads pop up. People are like, he said whore? Yeah, because it's a word that's graphic. It's a dirty word. It's It's a word that has connotations with it that echo like this is not a comfortable conversation. Well, the word prostitute can be so sterilized and clean, but we know what a male or female prostitute does and we know why they do it and we know what they exchange for what they receive. It's transactional. This is a huge image that John sees, and John, he has a reaction to it. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. First point I want to make found in the 17th chapter is this. The prostitute is not disguised. She's not pretending to be something else. He or she is standing up. In this case, they use a depiction of a woman. They call her Babylon, the great city. And she's not disguised. Now, what's fascinating to me is at one point uh, it's referred to as Babylon. And I think that John's audience would have heard Rome because Babylon no longer existed and they would have seen the power of Rome, but it's depicted as this sensuous woman enticing. And what's interesting is she's not disguised at all. She's sensuous. She's beautiful. How do I know that? Verse four, arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. Verse six, 
John says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. I don't want to make too much of that, but I want you to understand when John saw her, he wasn't necessarily disgusted. She was beautiful. She was attractive. If you, if you can't be comfortable with that, I want you to read Proverbs chapter 6. You could write that down in your journal. Because in Proverbs chapter 6, the wisdom literature displays the enticement, the allurement of this sexual, sensuous environment. And we know it living in the culture we're living in. We fully understand. Now, what I love to be able to say is, is we're a church that totally believes sex is good, given to us by God. It's healing. It's beautiful. It's a part of God's plan for us. It's when we take it outside of God's will that it becomes poisonous and damaging and detrimental. It becomes selfish. Used God's way, it becomes selfless. And it makes two one, and it becomes a beautiful thing that God intends. But in this image, John sees her, and he's, he sees her attractiveness. He understands her seduction. Yeah, I'm not saying that John was like going to run to her, but when he saw her, he's like, wow. You see, things of the world are real in allurement. They offer us satisfaction. They offer us temporary beauty. It's not lasting. It's not healing, but it's present. And she's sensuous. And she is the great city Babylon, which is fascinating because in John's vision, he sees a couple of things. And we'll talk about this in two weeks on, on Easter morning. She comes in and she's a, a harlot. She's a, she's a prostitute. And then she's a city. And in chapters 21 and 22, the great city Jerusalem comes down, the new holy city, a perfect cube. It comes down and when it lands, at one time it's a place and another time it's a person. Which is it? Well, come back in two weeks, I'll tell you. See, his audience knew this was Rome. It was the power and the prestige and the allurement of Rome because Rome expected to provide you whatever you needed. And all it simply asked was absolute, complete loyalty or death. It's not a big deal, right? Bow or die. That's what Rome offered. That's what the harlot offers. I will give you X if you give me Y. We know it's transaction. And this is the symbol of infidelity, the symbol of idolatry, the symbol of immorality. At Babylon, the great city, it had seduced Israel it had attacked Israel, and it had devastated Israel. John's audience would have known this image of Babylon, the great city, and here she comes. And don't think for a moment, she's disguised at all. She comes to be sensuous. She comes to allure us. She comes to entice us. And the prostitute sits on the beast. You might remember when we talked about the dragon and the two beasts, that the two beasts come to persecute the church. They portray themselves to be Christ-like, to be God-like. They try to, to get people to worship them because they want to display a mocking parody of Jesus. And they come to bring persecution and destruction. Don't miss the fact that the whore sits on the beast's back. She comes out of the water. You might remember the water indicated chaos and darkness and the unknown and evil. Some scholars suggest that the, the glass sea in front of God's throne showed that God's sovereignty in the midst of all that chaos, God was absolutely in control. But out of the water comes the prostitute and she rides on the back of one of the beasts and they set out to persecute the church. See, don't miss for a second. Seduction comes in the woman. Persecution comes through the beast. And she sits on the back of the beast showing her authority and her power and her prestige and her glamour and the world sees power and authority and we become attracted to it and we bow down and we worship it. And they come after the followers. They try to change the loyalty of the followers of Jesus to following the beast. 
but the monster demands absolute loyalty. And without absolute loyalty, there's death. Yet as a pastor, to stand in front of Christians and say Jesus not only deserves, but expects absolute loyalty, and people roll their eyes. People dismiss that like, Mark, don't be crazy. I've got a life to live. I've got a job to do. I've got a family to raise. I don't have all of this time to devote completely to this. I'm telling you, please understand. Isn't it funny that the world can demand total loyalty from us to get our rewards, and yet we stand before God and we think we're dismissive that God would expect total loyalty in return. But here's the strange thing. The world says, if you give me loyalty, I may give you something. God says, give me your loyalty because I've already given you something. I've given you hope and peace and a place. I've given you forgiveness and love and mercy. What a powerful opportunity. Verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I love that. That we have come by his grace and he has called us to join him and we will overcome only because he has overcome and we will be faithful because he has been faithful and we have been chosen because he chose us. And so we are protected even in the midst of this claim to total loyalty. The second thing I want to point out is that the prostitute is not in charge. This is one of the most graphic and clear depictions of scripture and what sin is all about. And if you pay attention in the remainder of this chapter 17 and into 18, you're going to see some startling things. First of all, the prostitute is devoured by the beast. Don't miss this picture. The whore Babylon is given the poison she mixed for others. She's forced to drink it herself. The beast that gave her her sense of authority and gave her her posture, her position, and her place, that beast turns and knocks her down, strips her, beats her, and burns her. It's a graphic picture of the cost of what sin does to itself. She is destroyed by the one she served. Look with me in chapter 17 at verse 17. It won't appear on the screen, but I want you to see it in your text. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purposes. I don't like this verse. And when I say I don't like this verse, I'm not dismissing its importance. I'm just acknowledging my lack of understanding. For the longest time, I'm like, God, why don't you stop? Why don't you intercede? There are certain moments in history, God, if you just would have done what I would, well, that's a bad statement. I never want God to act like me. But in my understanding, sometimes I have to admit that God's timing will never be my timing and God's timing is always perfect even when he's late. And so what do we have? We have this moment where it says that God permits evil to go about its way. And I'm like, why? Innocence gets hurt. People get hurt. Why does God do this? And then I realized, the more I read and studied this particular verse, several people I trust very well told me this, God allows evil to run its course because evil will destroy itself. Evil will always reveal its own fallacy. It will break down under its own weight of broken promises and lies. And I sometimes wish it were different, but I trust God completely. And so in this moment, this unholy trinity, full of disunity and hatred, turns on one who served it. And can't we celebrate this morning that, well, if you serve the unholy trinity, they will use you, abuse you, burn you, and leave you. The holy trinity will love you, protect you, empower you, and guide you. Remember our little tricky statement from a few weeks ago? God's team wins. You get to pick your team. Don't be stupid. So this is what we're seeing in front of us, that her loyalty was given to the beast, 
and the beast destroyed her. And then the prostitute disappears from the earth. This is what chapter 18 is all about. Babylon, the great city, falls. It's destroyed. It sinks to the bottom of that dark, chaotic force of evil. It is destroyed under its own weight. The great city falls. And we would know soon after John wrote this letter and shared it with the churches that Rome itself, the great Babylon of John's day, will fall. And in fact, I'll say it this way. Study history, world history. There are no great sustaining empires. They all collapse. Don't place your life in an empire that's not going to be here when God's kingdom still stands. Verse 21, a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This happens as an estimation of God's judgment on the world. Remember, God judges sin and he punishes those loyal to sin. You might remember last week I said to you that there's an intensification going on in these images. When the seals are broken, a third of the earth. And then when the trumpets are sounded, a quarter of the earth. Or excuse me, a quarter of the earth, then a third of the earth. And then last week when the bowls were poured out, the entire earth. God is intensifying his judgment and the opportunity for repentance is closing. And in this moment, Babylon, the great city that has enticed and acted as a prostitute, is punished and thrown to be found no more. No great empire in this world is actually that great if they can't last. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. God said he would do this. God is doing this, and we should not be surprised at the outcome. So she is not disguised, and she is not in control. Remember, I believe the greatest challenge to the Western church, to one like ours, may not be persecution in our day. I believe it's seduction. It's buying into a kingdom that will not last and to a king that's not really royal. You'll see it. The point I want to make this whole morning is do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. There is truth presented to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ and there is power presented to us in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. There is more evidence to believe that God is doing what he said he would do than there is to believe the lies of our culture that always promise to deliver, always promise to save and yet never do either. Do not be deceived by the greatness of this world. The greatness of this world is a mocking term because throughout this letter, you'll see it over and over, especially in chapter 17. She's the great prostitute. Babylon is the great city, over and over. Those that do business with Babylon, that give their souls to Babylon to be able to be prosperous in this lifetime. They are great business people. They are great persons, great merchants. Yet the greatness is temporary at best. Do not be deceived by the greatness of this world. Revelation chapter 18, verse seven. And she glorified herself and lived in luxury, since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. She doesn't know who she is. She believes she's a queen. This prostitute has forgotten what she did to get her power, what she gave to get her money, what she did to herself to receive this temporary moment. She even calls herself a queen. This is what sin does. This is the deception of the worldliness that we're told not to love. It promises you that you have authority and place and title and prestige, and at the end, it will destroy you and throw you away. You are its commodity. 
That's why John would say, do not love the things of this world. Do not hold yourself to that. Her self-proclaimed greatness, she's climbing a ladder that leads to nowhere. When she gets to the top of it, it hearkens to Genesis chapter 11 where they built the Tower of Babel because they were going to climb to the skies and proclaim their greatness for the whole world. And the Bible says God looked down from heaven and said, huh, what is that? He couldn't even recognize their greatness because it wasn't great. It was fleeting. It was tiny. It was childish. I want you to hear the words no more in verses 21 through 23. This is the prophecy of the worldly kingdoms that promise and seduce us into trusting them instead of God. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sounds of harpists, the musicians, the flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. And your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. Dr. Shane Wood told us in week one of this series that we need to be really careful not to count numbers, but to weigh numbers. What do they signify? And I've been thinking about that quite a bit. And what I notice here, look with me at verse 10. In a single hour, your judgment will come. Now look with me at verse 17. In a single hour, all the wealth has been laid waste. I noticed something, that when God was calling people to repentance throughout history, there are seasons of repentance. There are months and years and decades. You hear the numbers? There's 42 months, three and a half years. There's this lengthy period of time that God is calling people to repent because he wants to bring them into his grace, not into his punishment. Yet when God's judgment comes, we go from 42 months, three and a half years, we go from all this imagery to one hour. Do you see the suddenness of judgment? The great empires that everybody bow before, that thinks this is in charge, this is real power, real authority, real accomplishment. In one hour, they're gone. No sign, no symptom, a puff of smoke. God ain't playing. When his judgment comes, the things that we place our loyalty in will be wiped away before our eyes in a brief whisk of a moment and we will realize we love the things of the world. And complete loyalty to God was not such a big ask. The sudden speed of Babylon's downfall is startling. It's the speed of ruin. And in verse 13, it talks about all the commerce that was taking place. Shane told us in week one that to, you, you, uh, sorry, you had to be in bed with Rome to do business with Rome. You had to be completely theirs at their whim, at their call, at their beckon, to have power, to have authority, to have accomplishment. And then they just wiped you away when they were done with you. And you look at verse 13 and it says, what did they trade? They traded flour and wheat and cattle and, and precious metals and stones and all of this and human lives. This is John's point. The world allures us into a relationship so it can use us. It doesn't love us. It doesn't serve us. It doesn't care about us. It cares about power and and accomplishment. And human souls are what are at stake. When you worship idols, idols demand sacrifices. And when you worship idols, idols demand you. Do not be deceived. Sin cannot save itself so it cannot save you. This is what we see in chapter 18. She comes in with power and acclaim and beauty and enticement, and she goes out bloody, naked, and burned. 
the world will eventually turn on itself. Satan seduces you to destroy you, never to satisfy you. Satan has no intention of making you feel good or to provide promise after promise after promise because you are simply a transaction in the system of a world overcome by evil. And so we all come to this moment. Do not be deceived about your life. It's kind of a harsh way to start spring break, huh? But I want you to understand that the the glory of the gospel is God is more concerned about your today and tomorrow than he is about your past. That there is an opportunity for repentance for every single one of us, even believers. I want you to know if you're sitting here covered by the blood of Christ, this is not whether or not you're in or out. It's whether or not you're his. And one of the, the best blessings of repentance is repentance is not a punishment. Repentance is a gift. He's offering us a chance to awaken to our real condition and to address it. So when we're told not to love, look at it again. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The antidote to this issue is falling in love with the love you've been given. Rather than loving the things of the world, hoping you get something better, something more immediate. See, the call to turn away from the world is not a call to a drab, dull, and dreary life. It's a call to a life of hope, a life of peace. Peace in the midst of any circumstance. Hope in the midst of any circumstance. A power of the resurrection. Because if you believe in the power of the resurrection, you're kind of guessing you're going to die, right? When the world says, no, I'm going to give you all this and you're going to be happy and healthy, but what if you're not? What hope do you have when the world socks you in the stomach and you can't stand up because you can't breathe? We believe that even in those moments, the power of the resurrection, that even if I should die for my faith, I will be raised again with Christ just like he was. He told me that. So measure your life. Do not be deceived. If you have things of love in your life for the world, repent. I'm going to share something this morning. As a pastor, I think I need to. And and it won't make sense to a lot of you. In fact, it may even become something I get mocked for, but it's, it's okay. I'm used to this. About two years ago, I realized that I have this obsession in my life. I love something in the world inordinately. It's baseball. Now, I'm not trying to be cute. Baseball games and the way they ended could change the demeanor of the rest of my day. If the Cubs lost in the ninth inning on a stupid pitch to like maybe some terrible, horrible team like the Cardinals, I could be really like a bad husband, father, and human being for hours. And I knew it was happening, and I couldn't stop it from happening, and I was obsessing over this. And so I decided last year, I didn't tell anybody, but I decided last year, I don't need the grief. The Cubs are going to have a bad season. I resigned myself to it. I decided for the first time in my 50 plus years of life, I wasn't going to watch a single baseball game until the playoffs. Now, the reason I wait till the playoffs because the Cubs weren't going to make it, right? You with me? You can see what I'm doing here? The Cubs, a team that doesn't know I exist, had way too much influence on my happiness, It took away time from my family. It would just be something. And so I decided I wasn't going to do it. And every now and then Heather would be sweet on a Saturday. She goes, Cubs are on. Why don't you turn them on? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just going to go outside and cry. And so I did. (laughs) And here's what I found out three to six months into this. The Cubs didn't miss me and I didn't miss them. Oh, I still get the text to say they won or lost. And I might go back and look at a couple highlights if they won. I never look at highlights if they lost because there's no highlights. But in the midst of this, I realized I have this inordinate 
relationship with it. And here's why I tell you that, because some of you might go, preacher, really, that's your only problem? No, I told you about something that was big to me and you don't have to respect it. It's true. And people around you may say, well, that's not a big deal. Don't worry about that. If you know it is keeping you from growing in the areas you need to grow, you know it's a problem. Repent. Surrender. I'm not going to get a crown in heaven because I didn't. I spent one summer not watching baseball. But I did find there's some really good books I needed to read to shape my mind. There's time I needed to spend with my family that shaped my family. There were some things I was sacrificing because I easily fall in love with things in this world. How about you? It may not be something silly as baseball, but baseball's not silly. It had me, and it still does. So I get to make choices, and so do you. Do not be deceived about your life. You know what it is, and yours may be just baseball, but it really isn't just baseball, is it? It's deeper. It's more powerful. It's more alluring. It's more seductive. Revelation 3.19 Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Let's focus on the last clause there. Be earnest and repent. You see, do not be deceived. Jesus is calling you out of this world. I've entitled today's message, He Calls You Out. And I don't mean like he embarrasses you and scolds you and disciplines you and demeans you. No, no, I want you to hear the hope of what we're talking about today. He is calling you out of this world into light. He's calling you out of slavery. Israel, leave Egypt and follow me even through the wilderness that I can deliver you. Revelation 18:4. come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. We want to do something this morning. It may make you feel uncomfortable. That's not our intention. But once again, do not be deceived. The opportunity to be thoughtful. The world keeps us busy, keeps us entertained, keeps us anxious, keeps us occupied so that we never really stop and meditate and think and pray and listen. So what we're going to do this morning is maybe this is something you do as a couple. Maybe spouses grab hands and share this together. Maybe it's a journey you take on your own. Maybe you kneel, maybe you close your eyes, maybe you write, maybe you speak. Be earnest. Two questions are going to be posed on the screen here in just a moment. One is a question that calls us into hope, and one is a question that calls us into the grace of discipline, something we might need to repent of. And maybe the Holy Spirit speaks to you in these next few moments so that he is telling you areas of your life. It may just be baseball. But if it's keeping you from being the person sold out to the King of kings and Lord of lords, why in the world would we not entertain a conversation with a God who is freely giving forgiveness and peace and grace to anyone who receives it? Spend just a few moments on these two questions. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.